Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. A year ago this week, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We're going to talk today about where things stand on the battlefield, the mood in Kiev, Moscow and Western capitals, and what we should be watching in the months ahead. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. He's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. A lot's happened over the past few days. On Monday, US President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Kiev. We just heard him talking from the Ukrainian capital. About the same time, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned after a meeting with top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi that Beijing might provide weapons and ammunition to Russia's war effort, something that so far it's avoided doing. Then, on Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave his annual address, during which he announced that he'd be suspending Russia's participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control treaty with the US. As a State of the Nation address, much of the Russian president's speech was directed at the Russian audience. But it closed with a stark warning for the rest of the world. They want to inflict a strategic defeat on us and try to get to our nuclear facilities. In this regard, I am forced to announce today that Russia is suspending its participation in the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty. Fierce fighting continues along front lines in Ukraine's east and south. Russian forces are, in some places, inching forwards, but they appear to be taking heavy losses for only small gains. Battles raging on the outskirts of Bakhmut. Ukrainian troops still defending every inch. Still fighting for every street. So where do things stand a year into the war? Can Ukraine hold its defensive lines until the tanks and other weapons Western capitals have promised Kiev arrive? What would Chinese weapons mean for Russia's war effort and for Beijing's relations with the West? And how should we assess the risks today of things spinning into a direct war between NATO powers and Moscow? So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Oli Oliga, who listeners will know is Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. Oli, welcome back on. Glad to be back. So although this is coming out on the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion, I wanted to use the episode not to sort of reflect back on the past year, but to look more where things stand today and where things might be headed. You were also in Ukraine recently, so it'd be good to talk a bit about your trip. But perhaps let's start with President Putin's speech. So we're actually recording this on Tuesday, a few hours after his yearly address to both houses of Russia's parliament. So what should we make of the speech? Look, the big news from Putin's address, insofar as it's news, right, that changes things, is the statement that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START Treaty, a treaty that does not have a mechanism for suspending participation. So basically what he's saying is that Russia plans to be non-compliant with START Treaty. It's not going to participate in verification. It's not going to participate in consultations. It's not going to participate in data exchanges. It may stay under the treaty limits voluntarily, but it will be out of compliance with the treaty. So that's the news. But it's a big deal now in terms of what it says about the broken relationship with the U.S. and in terms of arms control. So Moscow effectively pulling out of START is huge. It doesn't cause a new arms race, but it does open the door for one. 
it closes the door on inspections and data exchanges and thus awareness with confidence by both sides about what the other is doing when it comes to strategic nuclear weapons. So that leads everyone to rely on intelligence to figure things out, and this increases the risks of misperception. It also makes further talks about agreements to limit weapons that much harder. Right, We had this constellation of treaties, which have fallen one by one, but basically what it means is now there's nothing left when it comes to the big treaties. There are a few notification mechanisms and data exchanges left, but that's about it. So with this history, can you bring this back even? It's really hard to negotiate these things. It takes years. But beyond that, if you're assuming the same countries are coming to the negotiating table in the future, why on earth would you trust the system to hold next time if it hasn't held in the face of crisis this time around? And then what you're left with is deterrence and trying to frighten the other party without adequate information. In fact, with obfuscation of information to try to keep your adversary guessing. And that is a more dangerous environment. And so that's start, but beyond Russia's suspension of its participation in the treaty also signs in President Putin's speech that he's preparing Russia for the long haul in Ukraine. The kind of realization that stems from Putin going on once again about how the West is responsible for everything bad that's ever happened, how legalizing gay marriage and other rights for queer people is a sign that the West is evil, etc., etc., what you really get is a sense that Russia plans to be at war for a long time, at war in Ukraine and in its kind of perceived standoff or war with the West. And, you know, in a way that makes sense, because what we've seen happen over the last year in Russia is a transformation of that country into a country that's governed on the assumption that it's in a state of perpetual war that then justifies sending lots of people off to kill and die, something that justifies tremendous limits on freedoms of speech, assembly, your ability to oppose anything the government says or does. And something I think we've talked about before is that the Kremlin has been trying to convince the Russians for the past year that this is World War II all over again. And this is kind of a confirmation that... He's planning on staying like this for a good long time to come. This is now how Russia is going to be governed. And we'll come back in a bit to whether he faces any domestic constraints and if so, what those are. But could we, I mean, in some ways, it's not a surprise that he is preparing Russians to be in it for the long haul because on the battlefield, what, a few weeks ago, there seemed to be this sort of mood in Western capitals that was quite gloomy, expected a major Russian offensive. There was this talk of thousands of tanks, ranks of aircraft preparing. But actually now it seems that Russian forces are struggling to break Ukrainian lines. They have a problem sustaining their operations. Look, the Russian forces are advancing very, very slowly, but they are advancing bit by bit, right? So you've got very effective Ukrainian defenses, it's costing the Russians a lot, but they are getting territory. So ugly battles, 
certainly nothing like the Ukrainian counteroffensive that we saw in late summer, early fall of really rapid movement, but kind of this slow, painful inch by inch pushing forward. What I think we're seeing is the Ukrainians are waiting for more Western gear to show up before they try to push back really hard. So what they're trying to do is hold in the meantime. If this is, in fact, what the Russians are able to do with their counteroffensive, and you mentioned the planes, we actually haven't seen the planes get used as yet. So are they holding them back for something, or are they not able to use them? Are they afraid of Ukrainian air defenses? I do not know. But if this is the Russian offensive, then the Ukrainians basically are trying to stop it, slash, slow it to a snail's pace until they can start pushing back. And Olya, you mentioned the Western gear, I mean, tanks in particular, that mostly these German Leopard tanks that Western governments have promised, but also US tanks. And we'll come to those in a moment. But the other thing people talk about is ammunition. Ukraine seemingly using each month far more than Western governments at least can produce. Plus, of course, those Western governments may have other things they want to do with their ammunition beyond just giving it to Ukraine. So are there looming shortages? I mean, how do you see that playing out over time? I will say the Ukrainians are smarter about their use of ammunition and artillery than the Russians, and that is driven in part by being more nervous about shortages. And then there's types of ammunition, right? Uh, when you talk about what Western states can produce, they're producing Western ammunition. Ukraine's army is actually running on both Soviet-style systems and Western systems, which means you need different kinds of ammunition for both of them. So... What one commander in Ukraine told me they do is that different units just are equipped with different gear. And that means that they are using something they're trained on. It means that you're sending them the ammo that's appropriate to that gear. You're not mixing and matching it, which could create a big mess. But Western production lines are not equipped for this sort of war. They're trying to ramp up. But yes, it's absolutely an issue. I don't think it's an unsolvable issue, but it's an issue. What do you make of the timeline for the tanks and how that's going to play out with sort of Russian attacks on the front lines? So look, one of the reasons you can't find lots of really good estimates of how long it takes tanks to arrive is because nobody wants you to have a very good estimate of how long it'll take tanks to arrive. But, you know, you can do a certain amount of arithmetic on it. You have to train people on the tanks. You have to actually deliver the tanks. The tanks have to be integrated into the fight. But, you know, some will arrive sooner and some will arrive much later. So, you know, when you talk about the Abrams, I would put that on kind of the longest uh, timeline. Those are the American tanks, much higher tech. Those are the American tanks, and they're very heavy also. So some of the European tanks ought to get there sooner, ought to be more easily absorbed. And it's already been a few weeks since they were promised. So we're talking a few more weeks, right? And the other thing that President Zelensky in his trip to London around other European Western capitals has pushed for is planes, fighter jets. Right. And we hear all sorts of things about whether or not planes are coming. One of the things that comes up if Ukraine starts flying lots of planes is Russian air defenses and how to overcome those and under what circumstances the Ukrainians would be using them in Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine. You can imagine some situations in which aircraft would certainly be useful for Ukraine. Western states have made a point of ensuring that all increases in aid are incremental. 
the logic you hear most often for that is that it's, you know, it's a way of making sure that nothing is too escalatory. And I think that's right. You know, the other thing to think about is if you pour everything into Ukraine at once and Ukraine still has trouble, if it has trouble absorbing it, if it doesn't actually work, if it's not what's really needed, then you're faced with a debacle. So there's also a logic of feeding it in slowly and seeing how it works. And so if that's the Ukrainian side, what about Russia's stamina, manpower, equipment, funds? I mean, on the one hand, reportedly phenomenal numbers of Russian troops killed, injured in the fighting, loads of equipment lost, destroyed. On the other hand, the sanctions that Western governments mostly have imposed on Russia haven't really hit the Russian economy, Russian industry as much as people anticipated. So how do you see that? I mean, is time with Moscow overall or with Ukraine? So it certainly looks like Russia has diverted a lot of its economy to a war footing and to supplying basically weapons and keeping them going. In terms of people, right, so we had this partial mobilization that I do think it's important to point out almost certainly pushed more Russian men out of Russia than into the military ranks. But the ones that pushed into the military ranks, let's say it's the 300,000 they said, I have no idea. Some of them got sent directly to the front lines, under-equipped and under-trained. Others have spent the intervening period getting training and equipping and are now coming in, and those are probably better prepared. But as we said, the fight is slow and punishing, so not all of these people are going to be able to continue to fight. So is Russia going to need to mobilize more? How much space does it have? The comparison you always hear that says Russia has the advantage is a simple population comparison, right? That Russia has nearly 150 million people. Ukraine has 44 million people. Here's the thing, though. Russia is sending to war pretty much only men. We haven't seen any reports of Russian women in combat. And it's sending men from generally poorer communities in Russia, people who don't have a lot of alternatives. Ukraine is sending mostly men to fight, but it is much more welcoming and it celebrates the women who fight in its armed forces. And Ukrainians of all walks of life are fighting. So again, one of my conversations in Kiev, a general I was speaking to took pains to point out that he's got professors and lawyers and school teachers and biochemists fighting for him. It doesn't quite equalize the numbers, but it starts to change that equation. It's not as much of an advantage for Russia as it looks in a pure population-to-population comparison. And presumably quite tricky for the Kremlin. I mean, what another mobilization maybe risks another exodus of Russians from the country, potentially domestic political blowback. I mean, what about the Wagner forces, the forces from the private security firm with close ties to the Kremlin? I mean, large numbers reportedly fighting in parts of Ukraine. I mean, you're counting those in the statistics. Presumably they add to the numbers. So, yes, they're clearly in the fight. We've seen people throw out numbers, tens of thousands, as many as 50,000 Wagner fighters in Ukraine alone. I don't know if it's that high, but certainly there are a lot of people and they get attention, right? They're clickbaity. Most of Russia's force is regular military mobilized people, but there are a large number of Wagner 
people fighting. There's a whole conversation we could have about how reliant the Russian military is on them, how reliant Wagner itself is on recruits from prisons and so forth, and on what the political implications are. And I think those are all really interesting questions to which we don't necessarily have very good answers. But yes, they are clearly in the fight. So just while we're still talking about Russian staying power, as we heard up top over the last couple of days, US Secretary of State Tony Blinken warned that China is considering sending lethal support, potentially weapons, ammunition, for the first time to Russia. I mean, up to now, Russia's, what, producing weapons domestically, getting some from Iran. Leaving aside for a moment the politics of Beijing providing arms, would Chinese weapons make a big military difference? So it's hard to judge, and it's hard to judge in part because I don't have a good sense of where the gaps are for Russia. Mm. I mean, this is something we're all watching and trying to figure out. If anything, if you get information that they're importing something, well, it means that they can't do that domestically. And then does it make a difference? Well, it depends on what that thing is. So it's really hard for me to judge without having more information about what exactly it is we're talking about. And the United States was not kind enough to give us that much detail. And in terms of battlefield developments, I guess what we should watch for is any change to the pattern that you talked about earlier, these very slow grinding gains for Russia. So watch for breakthroughs of Ukrainian front lines in particular. Yeah, breakthroughs and also breakthroughs that happen comparatively quickly as opposed to people announcing that they've taken a village or a town and then clearly not taking it for days or weeks after that announcement like what's happening around Bakhmut, this city in Donetsk in the east that we heard about up top that's seen fierce fighting for weeks now. So, you know, it's possible Bakhmut will fall or will have fallen by the time this posts. But, God, I don't know what's left of Bakhmut at this point. There's been so much fighting. And, uh, you know, if you've seen the images of it, it's just horrifying, the destruction. If Russia takes it, Russia's taking what's left of it. Which, again, Russia does not seem to mind. I mean, take a look at Mariupol. But that's the new pattern. The other thing to watch, though, again, it's really hard to draw conclusions for, is these Russian bombardments of Ukraine as a whole, Ukrainian infrastructure. From a uh, impressionistic standpoint, there do seem to be patterns and occasional slowdowns and then ramp-ups. But what that means or doesn't mean and what the implications are, not clear, right? Every once in a while, there's an actual strategic target, but the Ukrainians have gotten very good at getting energy infrastructure back up quickly, and the Russians aren't going after anything else, really, right? They hit cities and they hit energy infrastructure. So you were in Ukraine a few weeks ago. You visited Kiev, several other places, including some of the places that have been recaptured by Ukrainians that were formerly occupied by Russia. How was the mood among Ukrainian officials and within government circles? I think there was a real recognition that this could be a very long war. When I was last in Ukraine before this trip in the fall, it was on the heels of the successful counteroffensive and there was a lot of optimism. Now there's just a lot of, we're in this for the long haul, but it's going to be a long haul. And you know, that's not a particularly happy place to be. People are resigned to it, both from the perspective of military and government officials and civilians. And people do expect 
victory, right? I, they don't see much of an alternative to victory, I think, is what you're really hearing. Um, so it's a, well, we have to win and we'll do what it takes. Then you can get into parsing what victory means, which some people are more interested in doing than others. In the territories that are recently liberated and in talking to people who live there who are administering those territories, they will tell you that the biggest issues have been just getting electricity and connectivity to these communities, some of which were without power for 10 months. You know, people want to be able to heat water and turn on the light and they want internet, but the destruction is tremendous. The contamination with mines is huge. We were honestly advised that if, you know, if you need to relieve yourself while driving in these areas, just stick your butt out the side of the car. Do not get out of the vehicle. Stories of mines on top of mines, right? So that uh, when a mine is identified and the team comes out to clear it, they then trip a mine underneath. So... This is going to be such a nightmare for rebuilding. And then besides that, you've got populations that have stayed, that are traumatized, people who were captured by the occupying forces and imprisoned by them. Often tortured or mistreated or... Tortured, raped, mistreated, yes. Or just left in a dark hole with limited food and water, which is probably also a form of torture. So what you also have is uh, both officials and human rights organizations trying to document this, both in the interest of potentially having legal cases and in the interest of understanding this history. And then finally, in terms of providing assistance to people who need it. But that's also just such a huge load, right? Everybody who suffered personally, everybody whose home was destroyed, everybody who lost family, just how do you manage that? It's overwhelming. The people we talk to who are working on this, they're very tired people, right? And they recognize that they're in for just a tremendous challenge. But what's also kind of amazing is they're plodding on, right? They're getting up every morning and they're trying to make a dent. And in the sort of devastation in these places, I mean, there must, there must be a lot of anger toward toward Russia, of course, but accusations of Ukrainians that have collaborated, has it torn apart the social fabric in places as well, or has that been less evident? Yeah, talking to people, you hear a lot of very, very different estimates of what percentage of the local population was friendly to Russia and was, I mean, just really you know, everything from maybe 10, 20% to maybe a third to half. And, you know, this is from the same conversation from two different people about the same community. And friendly to Russia could just mean doing what people felt they needed to to survive, right? Or not wanting to get thrown in the dark holes that you talked about. Well, again, how are you defining friendly? So what's been going on is that the Ukrainian officials are trying to establish the extent to which people committed criminal acts. And on the one hand, the legislation that's in place is confusing and inadequate. And some of the legislation that's being considered is also confusing and inadequate in terms of defining what it means to collaborate, what the repercussions of collaboration are, etc. But in part because the caseload is so high, people who say that they were under duress are believed. So 
I don't think there's a huge number of human rights violations as a result of this. There's a lot of risks with how the legislation is being written and some of the public mood, to be honest. But sorry, you mean not a lot of human rights violations of people accused of collaborating by the Ukrainian authorities or others? Exactly. I mean, we certainly hear some cases like that, right, of people who have been brought up on charges for social media posts or whatever else. You hear about some of that. But when you actually get into these regions and talk to people, it doesn't seem like that's anybody's priority. And is the government, is President Zelensky as popular in Ukraine as he is in Western capitals? I think Ukrainians are very supportive of their government in the context of the war. They're not that given to hero worship of this government, maybe of the armed forces, maybe of particular soldiers, right? So I think Zelensky is popular. I mean, you'll certainly talk to Ukrainians who say he's a great leader and he's a great president. And you'll talk to a lot of Ukrainians who'll say they are grateful that he was the guy they had in power when the Russians launched the full-scale invasion. But you don't get, like, adulation. I think that's healthy. And of course, you do have these shakeups in the government and the corruption scandals. And look, corruption scandals are good insofar as they indicate that there is an effort to limit and constrain corruption. They're bad if they fail to actually limit and constrain corruption in the future. So Ukrainians have had a lot of this over the course of the last 30 years. And I think they tend to watch it with a bit of cynicism. Also, when I was there, the scandal about uh, military food purchases broke, and everybody was talking about it, right? And this was the scandal about the very high prices that the armed forces were paying for food and the implication that someone was doing well out of that. Yeah, everybody was talking about this. And the other thing that was interesting was that there was also a bit of a debate about the debate. Like, should we be talking about this? Should we be criticizing our government? And the general answer was, yes, yes, we should. I mean, in a time of war, we can't be wasting money. It's important that the money be well spent. It doesn't mean we oppose our government. It means that we want our government to win the war, and it's not going to win the war if it's paying three times as much as it needs to be paying for eggs. So there's quite a lot happened in Western capitals as well over the past few weeks. Mid-February, there was this article in the Washington Post in the US arguing that despite the promises of the Biden administration to back Ukraine for as long as it takes, actually administration officials had warned Kiev behind the scenes that due to the politics in the US, and particularly this small caucus of Republican legislators that sort of question US support for Ukraine, it wasn't clear that the sort of money and weapons the US was sending would last, that now was the time for Ukraine to press its advantage. That article was very quickly walked back by top Biden officials. And then you had these very strong expressions of support for Kiev at the Munich Security Conference and, of course, Biden's surprise visit to Kiev. So up to now, the equation has sort of been Ukrainian bravery plus Russia's horror show, its atrocities, equals Western determination and unity in support of Ukraine. Do you think that is going to hold? So far, so good. I mean, Russian atrocities, you still have those, right? That's still going on. Ukrainian bravery and Ukrainian wherewithal also still going on. So I don't see a particular reason for all of this to break. It is expensive. It is exhausting. It distracts from things that the administration might prefer to be doing. So they'd certainly love to find a way to end it, but they'd want a way to end it that 
does not set them up for more problems in the future. And you know, the general view on that is that that means you have to keep supporting Ukraine. So that's where we still are until and unless something happens to change it. Plus, as we've talked about before, many European capitals now see their own security at stake, not just Ukrainian security. But Olier, you know, notwithstanding this story from the Washington Post, you don't worry about Western unity holding over the course of the year, particularly given the politics in the US? So I don't worry about unity the way that some folks do. I think debate is a hallmark of democracy. Russia has also been very helpful to maintaining unity. And as you noted, it's not just about how they wage the war, though it's certainly that, but it's things like Putin's speeches, including this most recent one, which suggests that Russia has decided it's going to be at war in perpetuity, that in fact, it's kind of thinking of itself as a system that is based on that almost requires this war to continue. And although the war they're fighting is against Ukraine, they're making very clear that they see their broader standoff as with the West as a whole. So that increases rather than decreases Western incentives to keep backing Ukraine. And it supports the argument uh, made very frequently, most frequently in Eastern European countries, that Russia poses a real threat to Western states. And I really am not able to make an argument that anyone should be absolutely confident that for some reason that is going to just stop with Ukraine, that Ukraine is all that Russia cares about. The countries in question don't believe that, and it makes sense for them not to believe that. And um, again, we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. At the moment, there's no real sign that Russia's war aims have changed very much, despite the fact that clearly the war hasn't gone the way that um, the Kremlin initially expected. Still, President Putin's statements, statements of other Russian leaders suggest that the war goals are largely the same. They want a pliant Ukraine. Do you think there's enough going on behind the scenes to establish that that really is the sort of Russian bottom line? So look, we've seen a shift in the aims that the military is expected to accomplish on the battlefield at any given point in time, right? From march on Kiev and watch the Ukrainian government collapse of its own free will of a year ago to hold on to the south and try to get more territory in the east, which is kind of where we've been since last spring with varying degrees of Russian success. In terms of the political goals, the reason for the war, yes, it's they want influence, as they would say, over Ukraine, and they want a recognition by Western states that Russia has a right to control effectively Ukraine and Belarus and Moldova and Georgia, that this is Russia's natural sphere of influence, which of course is part of what makes other people nervous. So that they still want. But you know, it's very difficult to imagine a lot of ways that history could develop to give them a compliant Ukraine. Hard to imagine a West that just cuts a deal and divvies up Europe and Eurasia with Russia after this war. So perhaps the logic is that they can get that if they just wear the rest down. But with Putin's statements uh, in his speech, with basically everything we're hearing from Russia, none of it says, you know, if we just can get to the peace table, we'll make concessions, 
right? There is absolutely no signaling of anything remotely like that, or even a particular desire to sit down at the negotiating table unless it's to accept Ukraine's unconditional surrender. So I don't, you know, I don't see the peace talks happening anytime soon. Oli, I mean, if the goal is the whole of Ukraine, Ukraine's relationship with the West, then why throw all these forces at capturing small bits of territory with enormous losses? I mean, is that just about trying to pressure front lines, trying to pressure Western support for Ukraine? I think it's about pressuring everything. And it's about also seeing how far they can get before more Western weapons arrive. I think their expectations of this offensive were that it would probably be more successful than it has been. And I think there also is a domestic logic to it, that if you've just confirmed that your your raison d'etre as a state is to keep fighting the war, well, then you keep fighting the war, right? You don't pause it. You know, something a Russian interlocutor said to me is that the closer Ukraine is to the West and the better armed Ukraine is, the more territory Russia wants, right? It's not that there's a specific chunk of Ukraine that Russia claims, possibly accepting Crimea, and if Russia just gets that, it'll be satisfied and will have a sustainable peace. It's about Ukraine. It's about where Ukraine fits in the European security architecture. You also heard this from Putin, this idea that they're worried about Ukraine as a launching point for attacks on Russia somehow. Or It seems bizarre, right, when Russia attacked Ukraine and it continues to wage this war of aggression against Ukraine. But this is the logic you hear from Moscow. So from that standpoint, continuing to push into Ukraine is what they're going to do um, until and unless they get a surrender. And so the Ukrainian side, so President Zelensky's government says, understandably, that the end of the war is going to come when Ukraine has recaptured every inch of Ukrainian territory, when Russia agrees to pay reparations and there's sort of some form of accountability in the form of a war crimes tribunal. I mean... Maybe could we start with the territory? I mean, leaving aside the question of Donbass, you mentioned Crimea. I mean, isn't there a, a sort of recognition, despite what people say, that Ukraine is not going to get Crimea back? I don't know what there is or isn't recognition of in that sense. I could write any number of peace treaties that assign different bits of territory to different people with different conditions under different ends to this war and get attacked soundly by everybody for it, because it is battlefield conditions that are going to determine what things look like. I will say this about Crimea. The Black Sea Fleet based in Crimea and limiting Ukraine's freedom of movement in the Black Sea is dangerous to Ukraine and its future and its security. So if you're thinking about future settlements, thinking about limits on the militarization of the Black Sea and of Crimea are something I would be thinking of. But, you know, again, it's premature. Uh, The battlefield is going to determine what's possible. And some of the other ideas that have come up, I mean, there's the idea of a tribunal or some mechanism to, in essence, hold Russian leaders responsible for war crimes for the crime of aggression. So, look, there is a sequencing issue here. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, the people who are put on trial for war crimes are the people who have lost the war and they're put on trial after they've lost the war. If they've lost the war in a way that keeps them in power, 
for good or ill, they usually do not uh, face war crimes tribunals. You know, you're making a very strong argument when you talk about war crimes tribunals for the Russian government to A, stay in power, and B, keep waging this war. Now, I'm not sure they need more reasons for this. It's not as though they weren't planning to try to do both of these things anyway. But, you know, insofar as you're trying to create an argument that they should settle, you know, settle and then we'll put you on trial for war crimes, I don't know if that's very going to be very convincing. If you're basically confident that nothing will make them settle, then okay, but then you have to have a logic of how you're going to get them to that tribunal. Uh, are you waiting for their people to overthrow them? Are you waiting for a palace coup? There isn't a story I can tell myself about how that works, but I do understand from a standpoint of wanting to disincentivize aggression in general, not just by Russia, but by any other country that might choose to do something like this, how these conversations are valuable, right? Uh, the problem is that if you can't figure out a way to put teeth into it, um, you know, that might undermine the whole thing a bit. That doesn't mean you don't do the investigations. It doesn't mean you don't try to be as um, assiduous as possible about understanding who did what when. I think that's crucial for the historical record. It's crucial for the off chance that, you know, things evolve in a way that makes it possible uh, to prosecute people for crimes that they committed. You do it because it's to do honor to the victims. But, you know, I think... Promising a justice that it might not be possible to deliver, I'm not sure is value additive. Oli, I don't know if you agree with this, but over the last couple of weeks in particular, there seems to be this sort of sense that things are speeding up. Maybe just because there's a lot happened. I mean, Biden in Kiev, the idea of Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, sending weapons, Putin's quite belligerent speech pulling out of start. It does seem that even if the Nuclear rhetoric of some months ago has been dialed back a bit. There is still this danger. I mean, I think the escalation risks, when you're thinking of nuclear escalation, they kind of, they go back and forth, they go up and down. The risk is not zero, right? The risk has not, not been zero from the start of this conflict. It's been higher, it's been lower. It continues not to be zero. I think the risk is highest when the Russian leadership perceives an existential threat to Russia in which it almost certainly includes an existential threat to Russia's system of governance, uh, that is to say, the people currently occupying the Kremlin. How nuclear weapons are supposed to solve that problem, it's one of the many factors in this conflict where people have an end goal, and they have tools, and they can't really explain to you how their tools are going to accomplish their end goal, but they're convinced that somehow they will. So, you know, I think some of the nuclear coercive threats, some of the nuclear coercive language also fits in that category. But the risk is still there. So we're a year into this latest phase of the war. Obviously, it's been a year that has confounded predictions in, in many ways. But what do you think we can expect? What are we going to be talking about this time next year? So the way this war has evolved is not the way that anyone expected when Russia transformed the war that had started in 2014 with the full-scale invasion a year ago, the expectation 
from everybody, from certainly from the Russians, certainly from most of Europe, from most of the world, indeed from Ukraine, was that the Russians were going to win. The debates were about just how painful victory was going to be for Russia. But no one thought that there would still be fighting a year on. What they thought was that the Russians would win and Europe would settle into armed camps and mutual deterrence. And the next crisis would have even more escalation risks as everyone self-flagellated for their failure in 2022. So what we've gotten instead has been this year of a war in the center of Europe, which is of a much uh, more intense, much larger scale than the war between 2014 and 2022. What this year has brought us is revealed Russian weakness, but not a lot of clarity of just how weak Russia is or will be in the future. We now have a Russia that seems to have decided that this war is its raison d'etre. We have a Ukraine that's willing to give its all, quite literally, for sovereignty. We have a Europe that has determined um, not so much the fact of the war itself, but the way Russia has fought the war, the way Russia has talked about the war, has proven Russia to be a threat to European security. So if you ask me what another year will give us, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe more of the same, but there are going to be issues of staying power really basic things like keeping ammunition and weapon supplies flowing, not because people don't want to, but because it takes time and energy and money and people to build these things. Also of just more destruction of Ukraine. Now, it's clear that already more of this is possible than anybody thought was going to be possible a year ago. So how much more? I guess we're going to find out. I think... We all, most of us at least, hope that 2023 will bring us a sustainable peace, one that doesn't set the stage for that terrifying next crisis. But I'm having trouble seeing a very clear way to a truly sustainable peace. So perhaps what we're aiming for is uh, more sustainability rather than less, but um, without a very clear vision of how to get there. Olya, thanks very much for coming on again. Thank you for having me again. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine and everything else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And of course, as ever, thank you to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org. You can write to me directly at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Leave us a positive rating or review. And I hope very much that you'll join us again next week.